Welcome to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Dr. Rutland is a world-renowned leadership expert. He is a New York Times best-selling author, and he has served as the president of two universities. The Leader's Notebook is brought to you by Global Servants. For more information about Global Servants, please visit our website, globalservants.org. Here is your host, Dr. Mark Rutland. Listen, I want to tell you something. I saw, you ever see something, somebody, uh, any of you on Twitter, you're in the Twitter, Twitter sphere, so on, t- on Twitter today, I saw a guy, he tweeted something, and he misunderstood the passage. It's not my job to correct people on Twitter, so I just went on, but I'll correct him here. Um, he said, it says in the Bible, not a single sparrow falls out of a tree unless it's the will of God. And I said, no, see, that's like not the passage. What it says is, none can fall without God seeing it. So I, I, I just want to say to you, God is not sitting up in heaven knocking sparrows off of the limbs. No, I mean, this is very important. God is a good and loving and kind God, but we live in a fallen universe and bad stuff happens, but it cannot happen and God miss it. He knows everything you're facing. And he loves you. Amen? Amen. You can be seated. Well, that probably didn't help you, but I feel a lot better. It's worried me all day. <laughs> to call the guy and say, no, man, that's not what it says. If you have your Bibles, if you'll take those in turn, if you will, please, we're continuing this series. This is the second week, and I'm just going to continue this series for as long as as I'm not saying it's going to go all 30 Wednesdays, but I'm going to go as long as I want to. If it goes all 30, then great. But I'm going to just take it out as long as I want to. Um, but last week, let me just give, I'm not going to reiterate all of last week's, but I was talking about the post-resurrection relationship between Christ, the resurrected Christ, and and the 11 remaining disciples and the others that were around that group. And that Jesus spoke to them uh, on the issue of power. You shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And I dealt with the fact that that this was a, a huge and yet hugely confusing promise to a group, a small group of 120 or so blue-collar Christians who are a fearful little group stranded between the adversarial relation uh, leadership uh, of the day and a highly adversarial global power, the Roman government. So the, the promise of power Jesus said, you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come up. What does that kind of power mean? And and at first, the disciples misinterpreted it. They thought that meant Jesus was going to reestablish the Davidic dynasty, set up a throne in Jerusalem, and rule the Gentile nations with a rod of iron. And Jesus said, "That's, that's not the kind of power I'm talking about. So what kind of power was he talking about? Then Jesus takes this small little knot of Jewish believers out to Mount of Olives, and he says, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And them that believe 
shall be saved, and those that believe not shall be damned. Now think of the responsibility of that. 120 people, you go the just here's all I'm asking. Go all over the whole world. And if people believe you, they're going to be saved. And if they don't believe you, they'll go to hell. Think of the responsibility to travel the world. And what, what I say and how I say it could change the eternal destiny of continents. And 120 people, some of them are semi-literate. They're blue color. And Jesus says that to them. And then he says, and... By the way, I'm leaving. <laughs> and the clouds part, and Jesus rises to the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and the clouds close behind him. And they stand there, staring up into heaven. <laughs> Until, evidently, God says to two angels to go down there. <laughs> if, it, if it rains, they're going to drown. Go. And suddenly there are two men clothed in white who are presumably angels. And they say, why are you standing here, staring up into heaven? Just the way he left, that's when he's coming back. So do what he said. Go back to Jerusalem. Now, it's, it's not precisely 10 days, but maybe 8, maybe 10, maybe 7 so Jesus is crucified at Passover. The third day he rises from the dead. He is with the disciples for 40 days. It's not clear 100% if the 40 days includes the three, but he's with the disciples 40 days. So that would be 43 days. Pentecost is a Jewish feast of weeks. So there are seven weeks from Passover to Pentecost, and one day. So seven times seven is 49, and one is 50. So the Feast of Weeks in Hebrew, but when they translated it into Greek for the Septuagint, they had to have a Greek word for the Feast of Weeks. Anything with the prefix penta is a derivative of five. Pentagram, the Pentagon is five-sided building, uh, the pentathlete, um, so they called it Pentecost, 50 days. So there's Passover, the three days. It tells us in the first chapter of Acts, he was with them 40 days, and then he ascends into heaven. And presumably, seven to 10 days later, as we're able to do the calendar, Acts chapter 2 starts. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. Now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because that every man heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Are not all these who speak Galileans? 
And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and dwellers in Mesopotamia and in Judea and Cappadocia and in Pontus and in Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, in Egypt and in parts of Libya about Cyrene, that's North Africa, and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians, we do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. And they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, what meaneth this? Others mocking said, these men are full of new wine, new wine, cheap wine, popsicle wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, ye men of Judea and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you and hearken to my words. For these are not drunken, as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. The third hour of the day, as ancient Jews reckon time, would be 9, 9 a.m. For these are not drunken, as ye suppose, seeing it is but 9 a.m. Good old practical Simon Peter. No highfalutin theology here. He says, look, think now how, how much it would take to get 120 people so drunk they can't talk plain by 9 in the morning. He says, there's not that much thunderbird in all of Jerusalem. But, verse 16, but this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And then beginning with verse 17 is a quote or, or more appropriately a paraphrase of Joel chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, Joel chapter 2. And it shall come to pass in the last day, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaids, I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heaven above, signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Just place your hand on your Bible. Let me pray a prayer and let's get with it. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the people that have gathered here in inclement weather. Thank you for this church that would house us and reach out to us. And we thank you more than anything for your word and for the Holy Spirit, whom we welcome even now. Come Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. What really happened on Pentecost? I mean, there, there is hardly a chapter in the entire Bible about which Christians squabble with each other more than Acts chapter 2. And yet we hardly ever ask ourselves, what, what really happened here? Now let me say this to you. In any historical event, what actually happened may not be revealed in all of the concomitant activities that also happened. In other words, a lot of stuff may have happened, but it may not be at all what happened. So let me, let me give you a, an example. Suppose Pastor Joey and I go over to uh, see a, a local high school football game, American football. And there's people cheering, it's, you know, COVID is over and we can all sit close to each other and we're cheering and lights and everything. When we come out, we are met in the parking lot by a stranger, somebody from, you know, some 
godforsaken foreign country, Michigan or someplace. And, <laughs> and he says, I heard the noise and the cheering and saw the lights in there. What happened in there? And we say, well, that's football. That's American football, as only it can be played in the South and not in Michigan. And we say, this, this is American football. He says, yeah, but what happened? And I said, well, what happened is there were five men with striped shirts and bill caps and yellow flags, and they run up and down on a field defined by 100 yards by 50 precisely, and they just run back and forth with a whistle around their neck, and when they are overwhelmed by sheer whim and vagary, they blow the whistle and throw the yellow flag in the air. If you want to really know what happened, you want to really understand American football, you buy you a striped shirt and a whistle and a yellow flag, run up and down in your front yard, and when the fancy overtakes you, throw the flag in the air and blow the whistle. <laughs> now, that's absurd, isn't it? It happened. There's a line judge, back judge, headlinesman, have all of that. All of that happened. But you can't really explain American football in terms of the officials. Pastor Joey... On the other hand, this to tell you, he said, that's not what happened. What happened was there were 12 lovely little high school girls in short skirts that were jumping. <laughs> I, I will not pursue that any further, but that happened also. That did happen, right? But irrespective of what the Dallas Cowboys would have us believe, you can't really explain American football in terms of the cheerleaders. They both happened, but neither of them nor both of them together tell you what happened. So there's a lot of stuff that went on at Pentecost, but it's not what happened. If you just suppose tonight, just suppose that suddenly, all of a sudden, I'm not saying this is going to happen. However, I cannot promise you it won't either. But just suppose that right now the sound of a tornado ripped through this room. Not a hair on your head ruffled by a breeze. But the sound of a tornado just ripped through the room. And no sooner is it gone than right up over the head of all of us is revealed the, Shekinah, the boiling Shekinah glory of God. A tumultuous fire which whirls off and over every single head there is a visible physical tongue of fire dancing over your head. You say, whoa, 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 I'm a visiting Presbyterian. No, you get one, everybody. <laughs> everybody gets one, okay? And then you find yourself standing up and proclaiming the glories of God in other earthly languages or in unknown tongues. When you go out, you're met by somebody in the parking lot and they say, what happened in there? Be careful how you answer, because if you answer only in terms of the concomitant pyrotechnics, you may miss entirely what actually happened. So you say, wind, wind, we heard the sound of a wind and nothing moved, nothing was stirred, we just heard wind. And they say, oh, it's just a Democrat convention. And the... <laughs> Or you say, fire, fire, fire came, danced over every single head in the room, fire. They'll say, well, that's good for you. Their curiosity may be piqued, but their conscience may not be stirred. Or you say to them, oh, my brother, 
I preached in Elamite. It's one of the languages, listen. I bet there are not 13 people extant in the world today that speak Elamite. But you do. And you say, I spoke in Elamite or unknown tongues. I spoke in foreign languages and unknown tongues today. And they may actually resist that and never ask you, yes, but what did it do? What did it do? So we, we, we really have energized the debate between Christians by centering in on the things that happened and not agreeing on what happened. So what really happened at Pentecost? You just can't explain that in terms of wind, fire, and tongues. They all happened. We're not debating that. I mean, it's like, you know, in the Bible and all. So if you're debating that, <laughs> but, but what happened? At Pentecost. The first thing that happened at Pentecost is something that can hardly frighten us. The church was born at Pentecost, something that had never existed on planet Earth. The living, breathing, spirit-filled, God-wrought body of Christ, corporate, began at Pentecost. Jesus said, Unless a seed falls into the ground and dies, it cannot bring forth a great harvest. But if it falls into the ground and dies, it brings up a great harvest. He said, if I live my life in this seed pot, if this body, the body of Jesus, is in one place, it cannot be in any other place. And if it's in one place, how big of a place can, how big of a, the Los Angeles Coliseum, how how big of a place can we build to get everybody into the presence of the body of Jesus? But he said, if I go into the ground and I die to that body, then a new body can be raised up. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. So what happened is a new thing. The church is created at Pentecost. That which has been prophesied now comes to pass. So... How can any part of the church be suspicious of or resistant to the whole issue of Pentecost? Without Pentecost, the church may be an efficacious organization in the community and do some good stuff and hand out Thanksgiving turkeys and run little league teams. But without the the spirit of God, it is not the church. It is not the church. So... We we talk about a spirit-filled church, but a church that's not spirit-filled, what what is that? That's that's a body without breath. That's a a shell. My little granddaughter, I, I know everybody hates it when grandparents start talking about their grandchildren, but mine is really different, um, <laughs> wonderful, uh, more than anybody else's. Uh, Avalon, Avalon star, and she is, and she's sure of it, a star. She said, Papa, are zombies real? Do you believe it? Are zombies real? I said, baby, Papa, I don't even know what a zombie is. I said, what is a zombie? She said, Papa, that's that's the walking dead. I said, oh, baby, they're real. I pastored whole churches. 
Remember the, remember the, the valley of dry bones? The, they are, those bones are reassembled, reconnected, overlaid with flesh, muscle, tendon, ligament. But there's no breath. There's no breath. Remember Adam? God formed Adam out of the mud of this riverbank. But until God breathed his breath in him, he wasn't a living body. He wasn't a, so a soul, a spirit. So what happened, first of all, at Pentecost is that God breathed into existence the church of God. The church of the living God began at Pentecost. The further we back away from the fire of Pentecost as a body, as a church, as a group of believers, the further away from the fire of Pentecost we, we move because we may be embarrassed or confused or resistant to the, to the concomitant activities, to the stuff that happened in the upper room, we back away from what really happened, the colder and more powerless and more impotent we become. The church without Pentecost is soon no longer even the church. So we substitute for the power of Pentecost the things that we can do. We can raise money and elect officers and build buildings. You can do a lot of stuff. Really, you can. I mean, hear me. You can do a lot of stuff, even ministry stuff. You can do a lot of stuff without the power of the Holy Spirit. What makes the church the church is Pentecost. Now, that's not, Pentecost is not owned by Pentecostals. They're, just, they're the only ones that have got the nerve to put it in the title, but but Pentecost is about the whole church. I was preaching. Anybody here remember Full Gospel Businessmen's Fellowship? Remember that? It was a very effective instrument of God while it was going. In. God writes history in chapters, and that chapter's over and it moved on. But I preached at the World Convention of the Full Gospel Businessmen's Fellowship in Orlando years ago. And uh, it was in the lobby, in the, not in the lobby, in the ballroom, massive, thousands and thousands of people in there. And then when it's over, you go up in your elevator to your room. So it had been a, I preached that and it just been a wonderful night. I got in the elevator to go up and there was a businessman there that I knew I recognized him. I spoke to him, called him by name, and he just kind of staring off into space. And I called him and said, hey man, it's Mark Rutland. Oh, he said, Dr. Mark, I'm sorry. Oh, he said, I... My mind was elsewhere. I said, is something wrong? He said, well, yes. He said, oh, he said, I tell you what, what happened in that service tonight really bothered me. I mean, he's in the full gospel business. I said, it bothered you? He said, oh, it really, he said, I, I, I've got a lot to think about. I said, what? He said, I'm, I was sitting right behind three Catholic nuns. He said, you know, nuns. I said, I know what a nun is. He said, no, no, I mean nuns, the whole thing. He said, when you preached on the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you gave the altar call. He said, those three little ladies just went up to the altar. He said, I just want, he said, 
I just wanted to know. He said, I went up and knelt down right behind him. And he said, somebody came by and laid hands on him. He said, those little sisters started speaking in tongues. He said, what do you make of that? I said, you know, Bob, I'm trying. What? I don't get, what's the problem? He stared at me like I was speaking Elamite. <laughs> he said, Dr. Mark, if nuns are going to start talking in tongues, who am I? Do you see what he had done? He divided the entire body of Christ into haves and have-nots, and he was in the haves. If the have-nots are going to start acting like they have what he's got, he loses his sense of self-definition, which is based on a mistake from the beginning that somehow or another he owns the Holy Ghost. So here we are in a Pentecostal church, and I'm just saying this. The Church of God, Cleveland, Tennessee, did not invent the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We're just praying to God, the church, the Holy Spirit invented us. The Baptists didn't invent it. The Catholics didn't invent it. Pentecost is the definition of the life of the church. That's what happened at Pentecost. The church was born. All right. Second thing that happened is that the, the consistent, defined atmosphere in which that church is to operate was was defined from the very beginning, the supernatural. How can we debate, deny, argue about, withdraw from, and criticize each other over the operation of the supernatural when the operation of the supernatural is how the whole shebang started? Wind, fire, <laughs> that's a kind of a supernatural feel to it. Foreign tongues, and, and what happened there is confusing. They've got thousands and thousands and thousands of people on the outside watching 120. We know there were thousands and thousands because 5,000 of them got saved. So maybe all of them got saved. So maybe there's a minimum 5,000. And it says 5,000 men. Remember, the ancient Jews didn't count women and children. So there may have been 15 or 20,000 people out there listening. And it says, how hear we them all in our own language wherein we were born? So we don't really know that the Jews in that room and the power of the Holy Spirit were speaking any of those languages. We only know that the people in the crowd heard them speaking in those languages. How hear we every man in our own tongue? So they're speaking, and suddenly somebody in the crowd yells, well, they're speaking Greek. Somebody else says, no, they're not. That's Elamite. I'm from Mesopotamia. That's my language. No, I'm from Egypt. That's Egyptian. So that's supernatural. That's supernatural. The supernatural communication. The supernatural transformation. It doesn't have to just be tongues. People say, do you believe in the gift of tongues? I said, how could I not? I can't not believe in the gift of tongues. I have to just simply say, okay. We forgot it somewhere. We left it on a shelf someplace in Austria, and we can't find it. But the gift of tongues <laughs> happened at Pentecost. So I was taught, raised, brought up, and preached for seven years that the gifts of the Spirit passed away with the death of the last apostle. 
<laughs> you, you realize that that is not only theologically absurd, it's intellectually indefensible. If, because if the gifts of the Spirit passed away with the death of the last apostle, they weren't the gifts of the Spirit at all. They were the gifts of the apostles. So doesn't the Spirit transcend the apostles? <laughs> so the first person I ever heard speak in tongues, I didn't grow up in your kind of a church. I was a nominal Methodist. I mean, we were just two or three times a year Methodist. And I went, into, I went into the ministry, became a Methodist minister. You know, I was like the sweet little nuns, you know, the whole thing. I, I preached the first seven years of my life in an ankle-length black Geneva gown. I looked like a buzzard with a gland problem. I, <laughs> and I said terrible things about the gifts of the Spirit. God, in his infinite mercy, knew that it was my ignorance. But I, I mocked. I mocked people like you. I mocked from the pulpit. The night I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I had never heard anybody speak in tongues. I didn't believe it existed. The first person I ever heard speak in tongues was me, and I didn't know what it was. I thought I'd been asking for a nervous breakdown for years. I opened my mouth and tongues came out. I said, oh, God, I'm having a nervous breakdown. The man that prayed with me laughed. He laughed in my face. He was laughing so hard. And I'm speaking in tongues. I never heard it before. Do you realize what a shock that is? Do you understand? Imagine a scientist who travels around for seven years saying there's no such thing as dinosaurs. The dinosaurs have all died. The dinosaurs are in the La Brea tar pits. The dinosaurs are all oil. All of that. There's no such thing as dinosaurs. You come home one day and in your living room, there's a Tyrannosaurus Rex. At some point... Your theory about dinosaurs yields to experiential reality. <laughs> so the, the natural sphere, and I'm, this, is not a, this is not an intellectual defense of tongues. It is a biblical defense of the supernatural. That that's where the church operates. If we can do it all, we don't need God or the Holy Ghost. But if we're operating in a realm beyond our capacity, beyond our strength, beyond our intellect, beyond our, our power, then, then the supernatural is the natural habitat of the church. I'll give you an example right from this passage. Simon Peter. Simon Peter. Look, this is not years and years away from the arrest of Jesus. This is 50 days. 50 days, less than two months ago, Jesus stood in Caiaphas' courtyard and three times denied that he even knew Jesus and the third time cursed so that the people there would believe him. 50 days later, he stands up and he says, these men are not drunken as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day, but this is that which was prophesied by Joel. And he quotes extemporaneous, the second chapter of Joel. He's a fisherman, he's not a rabbi. We have no record whatsoever that Jesus said on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Ghost is gonna come, Peter, here's your lines. You stand up and say this. 
extemporaneous, under the anointing, he quotes the second chapter of Joel. This is Joel. This is that which was prophesied by Joel. Furthermore, he goes on and preaches, and he preaches with the boldness of the line of the tribe of Judah. He says, this same Jesus, whom you crucified, God hath raised from the dead. And it's happening on Mount Zion, which is where the tomb of David is. So this ignorant, unlearned fisherman says, there's the tomb of David. He's right there. Jesus is not in his. <laughs> and 5,000, 5,000 people cry out, what can we do to be saved? <laughs> that's, that's the proof. That's the, that's the proof that the natural habitat, the sphere in which we belong is the supernatural. I, I, I'm not with some that say everybody has to have this gift or that gift or this thing or that thing or do it this way or that way. That's, that's, that's dividing up into haves and have-nots, and I don't like that. What I'm saying is giftedness, empowerment, anointing, the power of the Holy Ghost, that's where the church was born at Pentecost and the church is supposed to operate in the rarefied atmosphere of the upper room. That's, that's where we're supposed to live. When we, when we come to the frontier of our pathetic human power and the Holy Ghost takes over, that's where miracles happen. I was preaching one night in Bogotanga on the border between Ghana and Burkina Faso. And I got there and had an outdoor crusade and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people and had a platform set up and string of lights. And I, I just don't believe anybody ought to be ordained for the ministry until they've preached an outdoor African crusade. You know, a string of naked light bulbs over your head. Every insect in West Africa just swarming you, get in your neck. And the Pentecostals say, whoa, he's under the anointing. <laughs> Dogs fighting, people selling popcorn balls in the crowd, women in the front row nursing babies. You're preaching like this. And, and then they came to me and said, we have Four tribes here, none of them speak English and none of them speak each other's languages. So we're going to set up five microphones, one for you, one for somebody in, to speak in Konkomba, somebody in Winomba, somebody in Ga, and somebody in, in uh, the Ashanti language, Tree. So we set up this, somebody's yelling over here, all the Konkomba people, come here, come here is yelling in Konkomba. Everybody that speaks Winomba, come here, sit down, sit down. All the guys on this side, all the, all the Ashantis over here, it's people that seething, dust in a cloud, dogs fighting, and then you start to preach. Hello, my name is Mark Rutland, I'm from the United States of America, I'm here to talk to you about Jesus. Konkomba, Winomba, Ga, Ashanti, back to you. Five minutes into that, you don't know what your text is. You don't know your name. <laughs> now, what, now, what could come of that? What could come of that? So if you speak, you understand if you speak for five minutes, it's nearly a half an hour. So I preached about 10 or 12 minutes. There has never been an altar call given with less faith. If you want Jesus as your Savior... 
if you're ready to renounce every other religion and faith and make Jesus Lord of your life in a predominantly Muslim town and come to the front and announce yourself for Jesus and people begin to stream to the front. Men coming to the front pull their hats off, their Muslim hat and lay it on, knowing that when they go home, their father will close the door. Let me in, Dad, it's your son. I have no son. My son died tonight. Walk streaming to the altar, streaming to the altar. And I said this, no human being does this. Then there came an old man up the center aisle, and he's crying out, crying out. I said, what language? Who, who is this? Come, come. No, no, none of these languages. Finally, somebody came out of the crowd and said, okay, that's, that's a language way up in the Northeast. I, I speak that language. So I said, or what's he saying? He's saying I was walking by in the street, and I heard the man say, the questions you've had about Jesus, come in and I'll answer them tonight. He said, because when I was a little boy 60 years ago, a missionary from England came to our village to preach the gospel, and the local mullah, the, the imam, the Muslim priest, if you will, had my father's elders of the village beat him up and throw him out. He came back preaching about Jesus. They beat him up and threw him out. He came back the third time. That time they beat him so badly, they had to take him home to England in hospital. And I, but he said, for 60 years, I said, who could this Jesus be that this man would risk his life in my village? And he said, when I was going by in the street, I heard that white man say, if you want to know about Jesus, come in here. I said, wait a minute. Does he speak English? No. Does he speak Dagbani or Konkomba or Winomba or Tree? No, he said, I heard it in my language. That's where, that's where we're supposed to live. That's where we're supposed to live, people. The church was born at Pentecost. And the church was born into the atmosphere of the supernatural. I'm not, I'm not, please don't hear what I'm not, I'm not saying every prayer you pray is going to be answered the way you want. I'm not going to say that God's going to turn you into Simon Peter. I'm not saying that. I'm saying this atmosphere of the supernatural is where we live. It's where we live. The third thing is this. Both of those things are group things, us things. But what happened in Simon Peter? The third thing that happened at Pentecost is what happens every time Pentecost happens, and that is individual lives are changed, empowered, anointed, sanctified. Something happened in Simon Peter who 50 years, who 50 days earlier said, Jesus never heard of him. Now he's standing up and preaching. He's not a preacher. He is a fisherman. 5,000 people get saved to your first sermon. <laughs> I'm glad that cassettes have been burned of my first sermon. <laughs> so something happens in people, in individuals. So Pentecost is not simply a it's not simply an ecclesiological thing. It's not just where the church 
It's in people, folks. Every sing- there are only two kinds of Christians. If you don't hear anything else, will you hear this? There are only two kinds of Christians. Christians who have been to the upper room and Christians who need to go there. The promise of Pentecost power is for every single believer. This is unto you, Simon Peter said, and to your children and to your children's children and to all who will ever believe. As we go forward in the book of Acts, we're going to see over and over and over again where the church subsequent to Pentecost believed every believer should receive the Holy Spirit. Let me close with this. Listen to this. What if, uh, here we are Wednesday night at 7 o'clock. I believe that there are probably people here who came from work, dashed home, met with their spouse, got in the car, came here, and they're planning to go eat now. So they're saying to themselves, I'm really hungry. I say, don't worry, be of good comfort. Pastor and I had a wonderful supper before we came, and, and we're full. And you say, no, no, you didn't understand. I'm not worried about you and Pastor Joey. I'm hungry. I say, no, you don't understand. Because I was satisfied some time ago, you should be satisfied now. So the notes in the Schofield Bible, with, with which and by which I was educated, say, after Pentecost, no Christian ever need ask for the Holy Spirit again. That means... Because Simon Peter received the Holy Ghost 2,000 years ago. You should be okay. And people in pews all over the world staring up at their pulpits saying, the thing is here. I'm not worried about Simon Peter. I need something else. I need something more. I think that we have quibbled over non-essentials. Who gets which gift? We have argued over the proper atmosphere of the church, and it's the supernatural. And we have missed the reality that this gift is for every single one of us. Every one of us. Jesus said in Luke eleven thirteen, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more... Will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? To them that ask him. In this teaching series, I'm not going to do this every week. But how can I teach you on Pentecost for this half hour and not give you the opportunity to ask? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? If you're saying to yourself, I know about Pentecost. I don't know Pentecost. I don't know that power. I'm not talking about specific gifts. I'm talking about the empowerment and the sanctifying grace of the Holy Spirit himself. Now, the only thing is this. and Please let me just finish this, okay? You can't do a deal with God on the Holy Ghost. 
you got to hear me. So some people say, all right, God, I want you to baptize me in the Holy Spirit, but I'll only believe you if this happens. Other people say, God, I want you to fill me with the Holy Spirit, but none of that. You got to write God a blank check. You say, God, any way you want to do it, any way you want to do it. You don't tell him what has to happen, and you definitely don't tell him what can't happen. Is this making sense? If you then being evil, I don't have any trouble with that passage so far to you. If you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those that ask him? Well then, ask him. I mean, ask him and receive. You've been listening to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review today's podcast. You can follow Dr. Rutland on Twitter at Dr. Mark Rutland or visit his website, drmarkrutland.com. Join us next week for another episode of The Leader's Notebook.